This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Buddy Holly. Ben-Hur. Space Monkey. Mafia. I want no trouble. Say nothing on the record, Casey. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of We Didn't Start the Fire, a song that's become a podcast that's a history lesson about all the biggest, strangest and most beautiful stories that shaped our world. Billy Joel drew our crazy route map. We just follow wherever it goes. Cold War, hot movie stars, big dogs, dirty dogs, tragedies and triumphs. I am Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckrick. Katie's school is out and Billy is in once again. Tom, today's subject is mafia, a topic that I have... a slight connection with because one of my several ex-husbands, I didn't bump them off. They didn't take a dirt nap. They're not sleeping with the fishes. They're not wearing cement boots. But anyway, one of them had a grandfather from Sicily who had some interesting and vaguely sinister connections Hmm. that got him over from southern Italy to America in the early 20th century. He lived to the ripe old age of 101. And to this day, I still wear his uh, little, what is it? It's like a gold horn, you know, a little gold horn that wards off the evil eye. I wear, I wear this charm around my neck. So I feel like I don't know where that charm had been before I was wearing it, but perhaps in some interesting and compromising circumstances. That's my only connection with the mafia, but potentially a tangy one. What about you? Katie, this casts our entire relationship in a different light. I now am frantically scrolling back over the preceding 70 episodes (laughs) to see if there's any point where I've offended you and you may have taken a contract out on my life. (laughs) I've only taken a contract out on your heart, dear Tom. (laughs) (laughs) That is true, Katie. Um, I have no connection with the mafia beyond occasionally attempting an appalling New York accent, which I won't be doing because both you and our guest are from the United States of America. I wonder if before we start this episode, we should uh, give ourselves mafia names. I like that idea. So um, I have a ridiculous surname, Puckrick. So that sort of lends itself to, I don't know, Katie the Puck. I've been thinking of you this morning as Katie Dimples Puckrick. Oh, I like it. I got some dimples. So you've just been known colloquially in in mafia circles as dimples. Oh, you know what? That's the right thing. (laughs) In my secret private moments, I think of you as the ginger kitten. But uh, (laughs) but I don't know. Does that sound menacing enough? (laughs) 
<laughs> it really doesn't. But maybe that's the point. Maybe <sighs> you're an iron fist in a velvet glove. I don't know. Do, do you have an idea about what you should be called? <laughs> All I've thought is that there are very few Toms in the Mafia world. However, there are a substantial number of Tommies. So I was wondering if you give me a Tommy, you lose the surname. Tommy Essex. Yeah, that would be nice. I do love your felted husk of your speaking <laughs> voice. So maybe it's Tommy the Fuzz. Yeah, I'll take that. Okay, Dimples, <laughs> where are we going next? Okay, well, we could just spitball all day here, but that would be silly. So thank goodness we have a mob expert. His name is Jeff Nadu, and he is the host of The Sit Down, a Mafia History podcast. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, guys. How are you? Nice uh, nice to be here. This is kind of a really great idea for a show, and I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure. Well, glad that we roped you in. Now, I want to know what the meaning is of the term, the sit down. Yeah, so the sit down is really, interestingly, it's kind of just mafia slang. It's colorful slang that the mafia uses when um, the goal is to achieve something. You know, a family will sit down with another family or uh, someone in the family will sit down with another person in the family. And they'll really just hash out their differences or or have a talk. It's really just a, a fancy word for, for meeting, really. Um, I felt like it, it fit well with the show. Right. Um, and just kind of ran with it. Before we get into the whole saga of mafia and why it's placed where it is in Billy Joel's song, I want to get into your fascination with the mafia, Jeff. What compelled you to start your podcast? Because you are just all over all those stories. Well, you know, I think the fascination, if you will, for the mafia really goes back to when I was a kid. I mean, I remember growing up when I was nine, 10 years old, the, the Sopranos was on at my house every night. You know, I, I remember Sunday nights, my mother and father would watch it. And you know, at that time, I didn't sit there and watch it with them, but I found myself, and this is a true story, I'd sit there out of their bedroom and watch the show. And, and as the show got more popular, I became more of a fan. And then I eventually, um, I lived in the Philadelphia area. I eventually moved to Philadelphia and I actually lived in a neighborhood that had the mafia in it. So. Um, it's just really something that you kind of just see, you just kind of become interested. I remember seeing when I was a kid, John Gotti on TV, and I've always been kind of fascinated by true crime, but it was really organized crime that kind of took me to it. And then I just started reading books and I became enthralled with just the, the domination the mafia has had on America. And um, it just kind of went from there. Okay, so let's anchor ourselves in the chronology of our song then. So it feels, Jeff, like we are very much in the late 50s and the early 1960s. Why is this such a pivotal time for the mafia in the US? Well, you know, by that point, the mafia, keep in mind, has, has been around since, you know, at least the late 1800s. I mean, at least in Sicily, even before then. But, you know, by the 1950s, the mob had really controlled the entire country. I mean, they had uh, their hooks really in every point of business that Americans would deal with, whether it was clothing, food, um, the government, you know, casinos, really whatever. And there were certain names that were really taking hold. The five families by this point had been kind of in control for about 20 years. By that point, you also had the mob making its way into other countries like Cuba and attempting to create and, and trying to control the governments there and, and put casinos in. But what I think the mafia really had a hold on that other crime groups have never had in this country is they controlled them and were connected in the government. We have to remember that during World War II, the federal government in America 
actually went to the mob to help with certain things uh, like protecting, um, you know, trade routes and things like that. So the mafia had certain control and were able to do certain things. Plus, um, you know, when you get into people like Jed Hoover, the mob had some things on him that I think he really wanted to protect. And he was kind of a, a shill for them. So I guess in a roundabout way, the mob literally controlled everything. Plus they had inroads into politics and things like that. And that would get into things like, you know, the Kennedy, um, you know, Kennedy becoming president and stuff that happened in Cuba and all that sort of thing. I'm interested in the actual origins of the mafia and, and what is the mafia? Because we just kind of assume, oh yeah, they were always there. But what was the function way back in the 1800s in Italy? Was it always about crime? Well, no, actually, it wasn't, uh, Katie. It was really initially, it was created as a way to just kind of protect themselves and their families from, you know, different invaders. You know, over the years, you know, the Arabs and and French and and Spanish and and all sorts of different groups were attempting to invade Sicily. Sicily is kind of involved in that Mediterranean area. It was always looked at as an island that never really had a, a kind of an owner, if you will someone that that kind of ran it and they looked at it as a way to kind of seize a place and it was used initially as a way to protect from from that and then it kind of just turned into you know every city had or town had a, a clan if you will that was kind of a mercenary they they kind of protected the the, the group a militia if you will and then eventually they just started kind of um policing their own areas and eventually started taking protection money. It was really just kind of a turn in, okay, we control this city now. Let's just kind of start hurting our own people. Some of my knowledge on this, Jeff, unfortunately is taken from the Scorsese film Gangs of New York, which I admit may not be historically accurate. So the mafia in the US, as it develops and grows, as the United States develops and grows, does it have any connections with the mafia back in Sicily or is it an entirely unrelated thing? Yeah, I mean, every every individual that came over, like you know, really just even the, the birth of the mob in this country, I mean, they all have connections back to to Sicily and into Italy. I mean, everyone obviously has a, you know, a nationality or where they're from. But yeah, I mean, most of the people that came over, you look at the individual that, that almost created the mob in this country, a guy, Giuseppe Morello. Morello came to this country, you know, in the early 1900s, late 1800s. Uh, he was from Corleone, which is, you know, as we remember, you know, very integral to the to the Godfather plot. Um, and, and really, all these folks came over with the goal of, of a better life, as most immigrants do when they come to America. They come here, they find, like in the Godfather, they find that life is not very easy. You also have to remember most of these places in, let's say, New York were already controlled by a group called the Black Hand, which had particular connections back to uh, Sicily. And if we remember in The Godfather, the Black Hand, that individual Don Fanucci, he was basically the Black Hand in that portion of New York. And the Black Hand were, were known extortion artists that practiced extortion only. And they go all the way back to Italy. They were actually mostly from Naples for the most part. Uh, they were part of a group called the Camorra. Now, I don't want to get in particularly to the groups just because there's so many different ones. But yeah, I mean, all of the connections date back to Italy. 
most of the people that came here, in fact, all the people that came here, came here for a chance for a better life. But a lot of them also came here just to create and, and to emerge uh, more of their uh, line of work in Italy to bring it here. So it wasn't all just people that came here and decided, oh, I can't really make any money. I'm going to get into the mafia. No, some people were placed here in hopes to, to maybe really grow and create. And you look at even up until today, um, the Sicilians are very connected still in the mafia here in America. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, it seems that uh, the mafia was born in Italy. But I mean, I know nowadays I spent many years living in Los Angeles and there was kind of the the Armenian mafia and there's other nationalities that kind of bond together in this very feisty criminal way. But what was it about Italy that uh, was the crucible for this kind of organization? Well, you know, that's interesting. I, I think, you know, we, we hear the word mafia and it's it's divulged into all sorts of other groups, as you alluded to. I mean, I've, I've went over groups like the Black Mafia. I've went over uh, the, the Albanian Mafia. There, there's all sorts of different mafias. Why Italy? Um, I guess really it just goes back to the word. The word mafia actually comes from Arabic, actually. Um, hmm. It's a Sicilian Arabic slang that really just kind of loosely translate into kind of a protector against the arrogance or the powerful. Uh, it is kind of a, a Sicilian word, if you will, but now it's diluted into other groups. It's really acts now as just an organized group of people uh, that band together and do crime. So it seems like by the time the mafia uh, became an entity to the point that Billy felt compelled to include them in a song, um, it seems like to begin with, the American authorities sort of tolerated their antics and mischief, um, perhaps, although I guess prohibition was the first big splashy moment for them. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about... um, how they went to be targeted uh, by the by the 50s, because it seems like there was a certain amount of live and let live. Um, and I guess they had J. Edgar Hoover by the short and curlies because they had some incriminating documentation on him. Yeah, this is a kind of an interesting question. I, I've been posed this question many times and I'm fascinated by it. You know, would the mafia be what it is without prohibition? You know, and you know, that's a great question. I think it definitely created this underworld black market, if you will. When you prohibit something, you know, the masses are going to always find a way to, to get it. And the mafia just really, in an everarching way, just had the, you know, the thirst to, to get alcohol and the public had the thirst to, to want it. And they created this underlying society that allowed uh, people to get what they wanted. And, and, and manufacturing alcohol was huge. I mean, to be fair, I mean, till the early 60s, late 50s, I'm not sure that the the government even really knew what the mafia was. I mean, I guess they had ideas that there were people out there that um, wore suits and 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 you know operated criminally, but th- there wasn't much interest in going after them. Obviously, I think this country cared more about you know obviously the Great Depression in the 30s and you know obviously the World War in, in the 40s, but. You know, Jed Hoover was kind of someone that kind of ran the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He was the first director. And as you said, yeah, there were a lot of things that he didn't want out there that people like Meyer Lansky had. Um, it had come out that, you know, Jed Hoover may possibly be a homosexual. And they had uh, photos. They had things to blackmail him with. And they used it as a way to basically, um, you know, blackmail him. And for a long time, 
no one really went after the mafia. And that had a lot to do with it. It wasn't until the late 50s when um, a guy named Vito Genovese, who uh, would anchor the name the Genovese crime family, he had this bright idea. He so badly wanted to be known as what we would call Capodututi Capi. Capodututi Capi means boss of all bosses. He wanted so badly to have that name. And when Lucky Luciano was made to go to Italy, he was deported in the 40s. He wanted to take over Vito Genovese. He had this idea to have a conference called Appalachian. It was up in New York in the kind of the upstate region of, of New York. And, and that was really when the mafia, I think, really kind of got on the purview of not only the government, they had already known about it, but now the public knew about it. You had it on the front page of the paper. Um, and that's really, I think, where things kind of went south. Tell us a little bit more, Jeff, about, just to rewind a little bit about the Kefauver hearings in 1951, because this seems to be a point where if you hadn't heard of the mafia, this was your introduction to them. Well, and it's interesting because I'm not sure we heard much more about it because anybody that was anyone back then wouldn't say a word. Um, most would say, I don't even know what that is. I don't, why are you asking me? I have no idea what that is. The Kefauver hearings were a series of hearings held by um, this freshman senator, Estes Kefauver. He basically uh, created a committee to investigate organized crime at the time. This is when you know, they were kind of done with the World War and, and there was something else to kind of focus on. So they held these different um, hearings in all these different cities and they invited mafia members in. As I said, um, they wanted to get kind of the origin that there was an existence of a criminal syndicate. And they just kind of wanted to ask questions. And as I said, most mobsters, in fact, all mobsters, I don't know of any that actually talked. Um, they basically took the fifth and said, well, I'm not saying a word. And that's that. And that's, I think, when we look at where the mafia has went and became today, you, you go from the, the early 50s where you have mobsters not even admitting that the mafia exists to, you know, the 80s when you would have a guy like John Gotti who's parading around and, you know, kind of making it clear what the mafia is. And that's kind of the change in what they were. But back then, you know, yeah, it was really a way for, for the United States to figure out who they were. The problem is no one really said anything. Yeah, I was curious about the status of the industry. Who were the players, the big players by this time in the 50s? Yeah, so as I said, the commission was created you know, really at the beginning of the, the 30s, Lucky Luciano anchored a uh, upheaval to basically take out the two bosses that he had in hopes that he could create something called the commission, which would oversee. And he had an idea to basically say, you know what, instead of fighting each other, let's all work together. Let's band together and let's you know put a commission of rulers and in, in, in intertwined that we can all make decisions through each other and and run things. The, the main players at that time really were still lucky. Luciano lucky had uh been busted in the mid 30s on a prostitution beef, got a large sentence, uh, was event eventually freed due to his um, help for the United States during World War II, and then uh, was arrested again and, and spent really up until his death um, deported to Italy. But um, you would have people like Vito Genovese, who had kind of seized power in the Genovese crime family, uh, a guy called Tommy Lucchese. He had taken over a group called the Lucchese crime family. Um, and, and he was kind of very integral. One of the things that we have to remember people like Tommy Lucchese for were his 
availability and getting involved in labor unions and really uh, kind of racketeering. He went from doing the killing to kind of getting into politics and into some of these lucrative unions uh, that we obviously saw made public by you know people like Jimmy Hoffa. Um, guy Joe Bonanno, if you know anything about the Bonanno crime family, he really kind of slotted in when the commission was created and really was the boss for a very long period of time. But you had all sorts of other people, guys in New Orleans, guys in Tampa, guys in Chicago. But those were the kind of ruling body uh, in New York. Okay, so if Katie or I were in one of these big crime families, Jeff, how would it work? What's the power structure? So you would have... Obviously, let's just look at the five families. So let's say you're in the Bonanno crime family. You obviously have your boss, who's Joe Bonanno. He's the the governing leader of the group. And then you have two positions underneath him. One is an underboss, which is basically the number two. Uh, They work in unison to create uh, things for the family or to make decisions. Then you have a person called consigliere or counselor. Um, they act as kind of an intermediary from the capos to the upper management. And they're there as generally men that have been in the family a long period of time. They make decisions. They help counsel uh, problems, things of that nature. And then you have what would be called a capo regime. And there are multiple capo regimes in a family. Um, a capo regime is the head of certain little faction subsets in the family. So let's look at an area called Brooklyn. And I'm sure Katie knows, I'm sure you know it. Brooklyn has all sorts of different neighborhoods. So a family will set up different little local captains that run certain areas. So Brooklyn has a neighborhood called uh, Bay Ridge or Bensonhurst. Um, There will be a captain that kind of runs that area. He has a group of soldiers and associates that are kicking up money to him. He in turn takes the money and kicks it up to the upper management. And then below the capo, you would have soldiers who are uh, made members of the family that have taken a blood oath. Um, and they're kind of the earners, the enforcers. They make um, you know money and, 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 and bust heads, if you will. And then you have an even lower group below them called associates. They could be either uh, Italian-born people or just earners that have connections to the mafia that are kicking up. Um, there's a there's a real heavy power struggle, but I look at it really just like the military in a way. You have your general, if you will, all the way down to your private. So it's really a governing board. I'm wondering if, uh, say, Tom and I are associates and we're just on the fringes and we kind of like maybe pass along a little bit of information from time to time and then we get some sort of kickback or free ice cream at the gelato place on the corner for our troubles. Um, are we bonded to the mafia for life? Or can we just go, hey, I'd just like to uh, resign uh, my interest in this organization? I mean, is it one of those things that once you're in, you're in, and the only way to get out is to take a dirt nap? Well, I think, you know, back then uh, in the 50s and the 60s, I I think if you were considered an associate, you know, someone that was making money for the mafia. So when you're an associate, you have to realize your boss, in a way, is a made member of the mafia, okay, a soldier is a made member of the mafia. He's taken a blood oath. Um, I think when you delve into that business, so let's say you're in the bookmaking business, you're a bookie um, and you're an associate. Um, you know, at back in those times, it's going to be very difficult to get out of it because that soldier is going to come to you and say, well, you're one of my main moneymakers. You can't just leave. That's not how it works. 
Um, now today, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a little different. And there are all sorts of different types of associates. Um, there are associates in politics or or whatever. Sometimes the government will allot you with the name associate. And you're not necessarily an associate. I mean, I guess in the government's uh, definition, an associate really could be just someone that you know, maybe you have uh, a coffee shop on the corner and, and a mafia member comes in on the regular and you say hello to him. The the government would uh, identify you as an associate, possibly. But no, I think if you're someone that's involved in a business with a soldier or someone that's very connected to the mafia, it's going to be difficult for you to get out. Now, you could, Katie, just decide, hey, I'm going to move to South Dakota and, and, and get away. But um, <laughs> no, in, in generalities, the mafia does a great job at, at really kind of getting you to a point where you really have no way to go. You can't really run. I mean, as we know, most people can't just pick up and move. So think of your podcast. Think of the mafia walked in right now. Um, let's say let's say a soldier walked in right now and said, you know, hey, guys, um, this podcast is still yours, but whatever you make, we're going to take 20 percent. Think of what you would do. Would you just you wouldn't just get up and move. You would just say, well, OK, I mean, I guess 20 percent is not that bad. And you know, that's how they do things. The mafia had the ability to go into neighborhoods that they basically lived in and owned and were part of. And they kind of got you to a point where you said, you know what, 10%, $100 a week, that's not really that bad. I mean, the cops aren't really here anyway protecting me. So at least I'll just go with one of my own. And you know, that's how the mafia was basically made on the, on the lower levels. If there is someone from the mafia listening to this who's thinking about confronting Katie Knight and asking for 20%, remember that Dimples and what was my name again, Katie? Uh, you're Tommy the Fuzz. Yeah, Tommy the Fuzz and Dimples did not take a back. That's step. a bad so, name. The Fuzz so- would be... <laughs> The fuzz would be identified in, in many... As from, police. Yeah, it's police. Uh, I would just call him the talker. I mean, he talks a lot and the that's talker. what he does. So. Dimples and the talker. Okay, so that's the perspective of if Katie and I were in the mafia. What if Katie and I were instead um, local police and we are walking the streets of Brooklyn every day, Jeff, and we're not stupid. We can see what's going on. Why are we keeping quiet? Well, I think, uh, you know, really, when you look, when you get down to the, the lowest level, so let's just say on the street level, um, you know, a, a police officer walking a beat in those times has no bearing on what my family does or, or anything. They they have no clout, if you will. Um, they can try to break heads and, and, and quote, a mobster, break my balls, if you will. But at the end of the day, I'm just going to go to him and say, look, you're making $20,000 a year. Here, here's here's two hundred dollars a week. You know, get lost. You know, that was the problem that the police had. I and mean, there were so many people that had more money than the police that could just say, "Well, you know, there's only a couple guys that are patrolling here on the regular. I'll just pay you off." I mean, we have to remember, guys. At one point in Al Capone's reign in the late twenties, early thirties, it was estimated that in the city of Chicago, as big as it is, Al Capone had paid off over half of the police force in Chicago. Think of how many people that is. I mean, in Chicago, they probably have 10 to 15,000 sworn officers. Um, that doesn't just, that doesn't even count, let's say the upper uh, echelon of the police force. So yeah, I mean, the, the mob had all the money in the world. You have to remember, even during Capone's reign, prohibition was making hundreds of millions of dollars. There was money to go around and the mob recognized that we know the federal government's not really going to do much. And these treasury agents and these 
these goofy uh, local police, they're not going to do anything either because we could just pay them off. So, yeah, it, the mob wasn't stupid. They were smart and they knew that they couldn't just operate alone. They needed the police with them. And any beat cop is going to say, you know, I, I could take $200. That's like my whole salary plus something. So, yeah, it was easy. So the mafia are operating with impunity pretty much for decades. I mean, every now and again, there's a, a high profile capture of some mob head. But um, why does the mafia come into the sights of the FBI and the public at large by the time Billy Joel uh, places them in the song in the late 50s? Yeah, I think I think by that point, as as um, as you guys talked about, the Kefauver hearings were interesting. You know, while they didn't really gain much info from it, it, it was a way to get these guys in front of you. You know, they all kind of acted the same. They all were mum. They didn't talk. They all dressed the same. They all had that same accent and looked the same um, and had that same vibe. And I think the, the public was was interested. I mean, we've always been fascinated. I mean, the, the public had known about the mafia back into the 20s with prohibition and things of that nature. So everyone knew it was around, but it was kind of a shadowy syndicate. That really kind of unmasked what the mob was. But in the late 50s, obviously, you had the Appalachian Conference was particularly damaging to the mob. Um, and just a little bit more about it. It was a just basically a meeting set up where every head of the mafia, really in every city in America, descended on one location uh, in a very small town in Tioga County, New York, um, that was decided on. And they basically had a meeting. They sat there, they had a bunch of food, uh, and they sat and, and, and talked about a different mob stuff, whether it was drug, the drug trade or Cuba or whatever. And the cops were tipped off. Illegally, the cops kind of raided it, and all these mobsters kind of ran off on foot into the woods. And it was kind of a big kind of laugh, if you will, because you had all these mobsters in in $1,000 suits running through the, the creeks and the the woods, and they were busted by these you know little state troopers in New York. And it was just kind of a bad thing for the mob, and it really didn't need to happen. And it was interesting because after the, the meeting, the FBI picked up wiretaps of, of certain members on the phone talking about, you know, I told him if we would had it here in Chicago, we'd have been good because they had paid off all the police. All right. uh, but they insisted on having it in upstate New York. And um, it was a really bad thing for the mob because it really kind of allowed all these different papers and things like that to really put it on the, the front page, if you will. And, you know, it just really became public. And that's something that the mob never wanted. Plus, it didn't help when one of Vino Genovese's uh, main uh, people in his family decided that he was going to cooperate against the mob to the FBI. That was the first real turning point in kind of unmasking the mafia. And tell me a little bit more about Vito Genovese, because he was quite a character. Yeah, Vito Genovese, I think when we look back on the mafia, is one of the most destructive um, dangerous individuals we've ever seen in the mafia. He would ultimately um, kind of slot in once uh, Lucky takes over as his number two and then just panders his way all the way to the top. But he actually would 
um, leave this country in the 30s and head back to Italy on a murder charge. He was trying to escape and actually slotted in with Mussolini and was very uh, big in the Italian government. He would order uh, the murder of of, of news people, uh, of, of, of citizens. He was a particularly dangerous individual. His main uh, way to make money for most of his career was heroin. Uh, and that's ultimately what he would be busted for. But one of the things that really took the top off the mafia was one of the individuals in his family, a guy called Joe Valachi, who had come up under Vito, had been a soldato, if you will, in the, the families. He actually, in that case that Vito Genovese was busted for in the late 50s, they were all arrested for narcotics violations, heroin, basically. And in prison, Joe Valachi was thought of as maybe he would be a cooperator. So Vito Genovese ordered one of his underlings, a man he knew, to kill Valachi. Valachi had gotten word that he was going to be killed. He eventually kills the wrong hitman that he thought was a hitman. The government goes to him and he basically says, okay, you know what? You have me on a murder beef here. He had originally gotten 15 years, but they had him on a murder beef. He had killed the wrong person. And that's when he decided, okay, you know what? I'll give you the whole Cosa Nostra. I'll tell you everything. Um, he was the first breaker of Omerta, um, kind of breaking his blood oath. And these Falacci hearings, these are on television, are they, Jeff? So these are almost the average American understanding the inner workings of previously what's been a completely closed world. Yeah, I mean, Joe, that's exactly right. Joe Valachi really kind of unmasked for the first time uh, what the mafia actually was. Because as I said, during the Kefauver and stuff like that, no boxer was saying anything. But yeah, he basically went in front of um, senators and he sat there and, and talked about the fact that, yes, the mafia existed. Yes, it, it's here. Um, yes, we have an omerta. Yes, these are the people that do it. These are the people that run it. These are the soldiers. These are the capos. This is who made me. Um, he had masked everything. Now, again, the mafia would just say at that point, well, I don't know. He's just a nut and he's he's just saying stuff he doesn't know. But what it did was it, it unmasked that it actually existed for the first time. And he would eventually write a book um, with, with a guy, Peter Moss. Um, and he was probably the most destructive person in the history of the mob. And again, we look at why it happened. Vito Genovese. Again, Vito Genovese was extremely destructive to the mafia because he put in all this stuff. He put in motion all this stuff. But yeah, we look back to who Valachi was. He was originally vouched for by Vito Genovese. Let's talk about the punishments and the executions. I'm wondering if there's a practice of one-upmanship in cruelty and violence to create this uh, atmosphere of fear and control. I'm wondering if there's like a Chinese menu of standard punishments that are meted out, one from column A, two from column B, like bullet to the back of the head, horse head in the bed. Um, did they, was there kind of like, hey, I'm more sadistic than the last guy sort of vibe? You know, I think the movie's kind of ups it a little bit. You know, the mafia for the most part is particularly um, not as barbaric as, as some groups. Uh, the mafia, for the most part, is you know, two, two bullets in the head. You know, they, they make it quick. 
Um, there have been plenty of tortures, though, over the years. Um, there have been some particularly heinous deaths, but you're really in the 50s and 60s around that time. I wouldn't say there were particularly chilling people that were doing like these sadistic uh, tortures and things like that. That didn't really come until people like Roy DeMeo, Tommy Patera in the 70s and 80s. But um, I have heard, you know, very grisly, awful killings. I don't know if it's a one up. I guess it's really of it's really just about bodies you know, how many bodies you have. It's kind of a, a level of, of respect. So the guy with more bodies is going to be respected. Uh, but then you also have people in the mafia that don't kill. They're the money makers. You know, it's a guy like Tommy Lucchese or Frank Costello. Uh, but, yeah, I would say there's a gamesmanship of enforcers and you kind of know who's the biggest killer. But, yeah, I, there's a particularly chilling murder involving. Um, involving a guy called William Action Jackson. This would happen really around the early 60s. Action Jackson was a a loan collector in Chicago, actually. He was a particularly chilling individual in his own right. He was a, a guy that would really go to any means necessary to get a debt. Um, you have to realize, guys, in Chicago particularly, uh, the loan sharking business was incredibly profitable for the Chicago outfit. Uh, after Prohibition, they used loan sharking to be a particularly strong way to make money. And they had these loan collectors. He would do things along the lines of um, he would burn people to get what they want, he wanted out of someone. He would I mean, he would even go to I mean, sexually assaulting the wives of people. I mean, he was a particularly chilling person. But um, a guy, Tony Spilatro, ultimately would... Um, have to kill him. And, and they went to some particularly barbaric ways to kill him. They were, uh, you know, using cattle prods on him, um, striking him with sharp objects, um, you know, just beating him in the ribs, uh, kneecaps, stripping him and uh, kind of slitting his throat, really kind of just torturing him. Um, I don't want to get into other particulars because they're particularly graphic. But. but what about this horse head in the bed that we all enjoyed in the Godfather movie? Was that based on anything real? Uh not that I know of. I think it was really just done for for cinematic gleam. And, and that's a lot of what the, 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 the public, you know, the people that listen to the show, I would say the people that don't know you know anything about the mafia, they're always going to remember stuff like that. But I think the problem with um, films is, you know, it's definitely entertaining and it's, it's for a purpose, but a lot of it's not factual. A lot of it doesn't really happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that's definitely a way to you know, kind of extort someone or, you know, that would be a great idea to do. You know, that that guy obviously loved that racehorse and that was a great way to get what you wanted. Um, but no, it was really just a, it was really just a, a film thing. The mafia obviously have this code of secrecy, but I'm wondering, Jeff, if the big players didn't actually really kind of love having the spotlight on them. I mean, how did they respond to seeing them in these tabloid headlines and all their their catchy nicknames and their lurid exploits? Well, back then, I think there were certain folks that enjoyed, you know, maybe seeing themselves on camera. You know, a guy like Lucky Luciano, I mean, he was kind of the godfather of the modern American mafia. But you know, this was a guy that spent a lot of time out in, in clubs and bars and always had a woman on his arm. Um, they, they always enjoyed that. Now, 
none of them appeared on camera and would talk. But by the end of Lucky's life, I mean, he wanted to write a book. He wanted to do films. Uh, that was kind of where he was. But for the most part, no, it was a secret society. They did not even admit there was a mafia. Most of these people, if they ever got in front of a camera, would say, I don't know what that even is. I'm just a businessman. Um, I'm just here to, 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 to run a business. I don't even know what that is. So None of them would admit. In fact, you know, a lot of the names that you hear uh, about a mobster, um, I've actually, you know, done research on a lot of the names. A lot of them weren't even names they even used. Um, they were just names that either the government put on them or, or, or they were just created. You know, a lot of people don't know. No one actually called Lucky Luciano Lucky. Oh. Um, that was really just... Uh, a name that, that was kind of derived from him, just from his ability to, it actually came, a lot of people believe from uh, him surviving a, a throat slashing and people said, oh, he's lucky. <laughs> so we've got an episode on Castro and Cuba coming up. And I gather from what you've said earlier that Cuba was a rich turf for the mob. What were their projects there? What did they get up to? Yeah, so the mafia in America really goes back in Cuba really in the 20s. I mean, Cuba was used as kind of a rum running spot um, and it would ultimately be used as kind of a, a, a thoroughfare point for narcotics uh, coming over from Corsica and, and even from the Middle East at one point. It was kind of one of those, you know, shipping routes that, that the mob would use. But a guy called Meyer Lansky figured out that you know, he's kind of the modern godfather for gambling in this country. <clears throat> he had actually set up many gambling points in, in certain points in America that he could get his teeth into the government. But then he realized that his relationship with Fulgencio Bautista, who would later become the president, would be a fruitful one. He kind of offered him a bribe and said, look, um, I control you. You're with me now. And that's when it kind of entered into its golden years, into the 40s. Um, there would be a conference called the Havana Conference in 1946 where all the mobsters kind of went down there and had a summit, if you will. They talked about kind of, hey, what's the future for Cuba? And that's when they kind of turned it into what Las Vegas ended up being in the in the, the beachy town of, of Havana. Havana was created with all these beautiful hotels and casinos, and it was a huge point of money for the mafia. I mean, Meyer Lansky had millions of dollars in Cuba. The mob had millions of dollars in Cuba, and they really operated like Las Vegas in the tropics. If we look back, you know, the, the singular issue for Cuba was Castro. Yeah, so Castro probably queered the deal once he came to power. Um, that was it for the mafia, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Bautista kind of picked up and, and scrammed and, and pretty much everyone else did too. By that point, the mob was flourishing. They had everything there. Um, you know, Meyer Lansky, a lot of people don't know, lost most of his fortune in in Cuba. I mean, he basically, everything was seized. Uh, Castro came in and said, that's that. And at one point, the federal government, the CIA actually came to um, people like Sam Giancana in Chicago and, and authored an idea to have the mafia kill Fidel Castro. The goal was they were instructed to kill Castro. Now, it ever, never ultimately happened. And when we look back, it's interesting to think what Cuba would be today. It would really be Las Vegas of the, of the tropics, really. Jeff, what about the rumors of mafia involvement in one of the era-defining moments of the 1960s, which is the assassination of JFK. What do you believe may or may not have happened with the mafia and the mob there? 
I think it's hard to to actually argue that you don't believe that the mafia was involved in the killing of of John Kennedy. Um, you know, if you know the particulars of the people involved, everyone involved with initially who they said did it, whether it was Lee Harvey Oswald or or whoever, they all had connections uh, back to members of the mafia. <clears throat> One of the main architects, in my belief, of the assassination was a guy, Carlos Marcello. Uh, Marcello at one point was probably the most powerful person in the mafia in this country. Jack Ruby uh, was a mobster uh, from Chicago. A lot of people don't know that. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald was very connected in New Orleans through uh, his own family to Marcello. And in certain books, I mean, one of the individuals that created the RICO Act, uh, Robert Blakely, was actually on the Warren Commission back then. And he wrote a book kind of detailing the fact that all of these individuals were particularly connected. In fact, another book written by a guy, Lamar Waldron, would claim that he was Carlos Marcello, the mastermind of the attack, and that uh, he admitted his involvement, in fact, uh, in certain spots. Now, a lot of people would say that Marcello, by the end of his life, was kind of a senile guy, but there, there's a lot of anchored proof that was out there. Um, people like Sam Giancana, who I mentioned, uh, Santo Trafficanti. Um, we could go into a whole show about how the mob is connected to that, but we have to also go into the fact that the Kennedys were, you know, you look at Kennedy, John Kennedy, he was elected on help of the mafia. He won Illinois, which the mafia kind of set up, and that was the thing that allowed him to become president, really. And if you look at his father, John Kennedy's father was very connected to the mafia back in the bootlegging days. But the problem that ultimately happened for the mafia was the brother of John Kennedy, Robert, uh, was really the guy that tried to take the mafia down. He wanted to prosecute all these people. His brother couldn't control him. And the mob believed that if we take out the leg of Kennedy, which was his brother, John, he'll do what he said. we say. And in the end, they probably should have took out Robert because Kennedy, the president, was very uh, corrupt and could be bribed and they would have been OK. But they took out John instead. So the culture at large kind of loves these murderous thugs. You certainly do. You're very sympathetic to them regarding them as. Well, you know, I wouldn't say I love them. I, I think for me, I look at them as interesting individuals. But I think the overarching definition of the show that I do is twofold. It's to first understand the level of control the mob had on this country and still has uh, in some small way. And really the the fascination of the public with the mafia, even you guys who, you know, you're not going to I don't know if you'll do a show on any other criminal group. You know, the mafia has always been huge. But I think the idea for this show really came from my fascination in these people that really give up their entire life for this belief in the mafia. What is so powerful that makes these people truly say nothing, not my kids, not my wife, not my family, nothing is bigger than this. And I'm willing to die in an eight by 12 box because I believe in this. And it's really just fascinating to me. What makes people say I will die or go to jail for this? There's one thing I've been wondering, Jeff, listening to this, and it's been absolutely fascinating. And there are so many picaresque characters and so many names that you can play with. But we haven't heard about a single woman. Was the mob and is the mob exclusively run by men? No, in this country, a woman would never be involved. Um, But in Italy, um, women bosses 
are there and they're actually there there actually was an interesting study done in the early 2000s in Naples um, by the government where they looked at the woman boss compared to the male bosses of clans and there was a woman in Naples, Maria Lachardi, that was controlled, controlled the largest uh, Camorra clan. And it was actually proven that she was a more effective leader than a man. And male uh, soldiers, if you will, almost looked at her as a motherly figure and were more respectful to her in a way. Um, so yeah, in Italy, it's very pronounced. And if you've ever seen Sopranos, there's an episode where Tony and his cohorts go to Naples. And Tony is so blown away that there's a woman boss. And he says, it'll never happen in the States. I love the idea that in Italy, they just plug into the the national cultural psychology. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the, yeah. You know, the mother worship, the mother love. And uh, as I've demonstrated amply throughout this conversation, Mob slang is just so irresistible. I don't know that much about the mob, but I sure love tripping those little slogans off the tongue. Let's talk about mob slang. Let's talk about what are some of the uh, the terms that uh, people toss around. Yeah, so it's funny. I think some of these terms are actually used. Some of them are just kind of goofy, and they were created, um, you know, in, in the terms of just like. TV or something, but like a, a word that you'll hear a lot is is gumad. A gumad is a, a mistress, uh, a woman that you have on the side, your side piece, if you will. Um, we've heard a lot of that gumada in like Goodfellas and things like that. Uh, you know, you would also have stuff like, um, let's just say, um, an earner or, uh, or or a connected guy. A connected guy is is an associate, someone that has some respect, but they're not a made guy. Uh, a made guy would be the guy that's taken the oath, uh, a guy that's one of ours, one of us. Whack, I mean, that would obviously just be killing someone. You know, someone, you, you'll hear the word forget about it. You know, forget about it as amply described by Johnny Depp and Donnie Brasco is really a, a word you could say in, in all sorts of other things. So you could say, uh, yeah, I killed that guy. Forget about it. Or um, that guy, you know, forget about him. You know, like you can use it in all different ways. Um, ice or, or, or pop, that would just be to kill somebody. Um, I don't know. A lot of these words I've never heard that were actually used. Um, there's a couple other words like juice or vig. You'll hear that a lot. That would be interest you pay on a loan. So if you get a loan for $2,000, the juice that you'll pay is the interest. So when you take that payment every week, you're actually going to pay $260 for 10 weeks. In the end, you pay $2,600 instead of $2,000. The $600 would be the juice that you actually paid on the, on the loan. So uh, making bones, that would be killing someone and getting the credit for killing them. Making your bones is your first murder. So you want to be a mob, so you want to get your button. Um, you're told to kill someone, you kill them, you get your button, that you made your bones. Well, Jeff, it has been fascinating having you take us inside this murky, dirty and often hidden world from Tommy the Talker. And from Dimples Puckrick, thank you very much, Jeff Nadu. If we want more of you, your podcast is called The Sit Down, a Mafia History Podcast. Yeah, you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I appreciate you guys having me. This was uh, this was fascinating. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't educate someone as far as I don't hear them listening. I just know that there are listeners, and I'm educating them. But this was cool to kind of talk about it. I thank you for having me, and uh, appreciate it. Hey, Jeff, forget about it. <laughs> 
Okay, Dimples, what are your thoughts? <laughs> hey, the talker. Um, well, I certainly know more about the mob than I did previously because in the before times, all of my knowledge came from Mad Magazine, like much of my childhood pop culture knowledge because they used to have those movie spoofs and they did a movie spoof of The Godfather, which of course rendered in Mad Magazine speak was The Odd Father. Mm. So, um, and I have to say, uh, still, I know they're ruthless killers and they're morons and they're bad, bad, bad men. However, they do sound a little goofy. So I will still continue to think of mafia made men as odd fathers. I like it. Well, Katie, the podcast that we're going to recommend for people to fill their ears before we return is not a mob one, but it's not a million miles away. This is a podcast called American Vigilante, and it's all about a guy called KC. KC lives off grid and he saves kidnapped children and does other things too. He's a complex individual. He could save your life, but he could end it too. Ooh, American Vigilante is true crime, but it's so much more. It's rescue missions, it's assassination attempts, it's last gasp protection from the Mexican mafia. It's all the stuff you hope never happens to you. That's right. It's presented by former BBC journalist Sam Walker, and she's been speaking to Casey for months and has recorded everything he's told her. It's shocking, it's inspiring, it's frightening, it's pretty thought-provoking. Search for American Vigilante in your podcast app now. And you guys can follow our Instagram and Twitter. It's at Spread That Fire. And Tom, what are we going to be enjoying next week? Katie, I'm hoping it's a packet of idiosyncratic crisps, but I fear it's something else. It's hula hoops. (laughs) Well, lube up your hips, everyone. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, 
all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.